The readings from Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26, and it can be found on page 1060 of the Church Bibles. Luke 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said... Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we've just prayed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And that is our prayer, Father, as we come to your word now, that by your spirit, your kingdom would come to our hearts. Please, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and changed hearts as a result. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take a seat.
I want to start this evening by showing us what we think is the earliest depiction of the cross. It comes from the second century, and most people think this is the earliest picture we have of the cross. It is not a painting, uh, it's not a carving, it's actually a bit of graffiti. Uh, You may have seen it, here it is. Uh, You'll see that the the graffiti is on the left, Uh, it's a carving on a bit of plaster, and uh, someone's traced it out for us so we can see a bit better on the right. And if you look closely, you'll see that actually this is a hugely insulting picture of the cross. There's a figure on the cross with a donkey's head, and some boy bowing down, worshipping the figure on the cross, and underneath it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, we don't know who Alexamenos was, don't know much about him, but it seems that he was a Christian, probably a young boy, and he's being mocked by someone for the cross. It's a reminder, isn't it, that at the very outset of the church, people thought the cross was foolish. And it's similar today. Here's um, one of the lead thinkers, Professor Richard Dawkins, writing about the cross, and he says this, I have described the atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. Now, I know Richard Dawkins doesn't speak for everyone. A lot of people are a bit more measured in what they say, but there are a lot of people who think like him, who look at the cross and think, why is that the central doctrine of the Christian faith? It just seems mad. The idea of a barbaric execution being something we talk about, we sing about, just seems foolish. Maybe for us here this evening, we don't feel it's foolish, but we're just very confused by it. Perhaps we've been at church many years and we've heard the phrase that Jesus saves us through the cross and we think, why the cross? Why that method? Or perhaps there's others of us who have heard about the cross for many years and it's just never changed us. It's always felt like a distant doctrine, never something that affects us from Monday to Saturday. Now, Luke, our writer for this evening, is not ignorant of this reaction. He knows that the cross seems foolish, but he wants to persuade us this evening that it's not. See, um, Luke's mission, we've said this in previous weeks, is to give us confidence. Uh, That's why he's writing his gospel. And he writes these final moments all about Jesus' death to give us confidence, not just in the historical fact of the cross, But why this is the most important event for every single one of us. Now, um, what's quite interesting about Luke's account, as you look at it, is there are actually hardly any details about the resurrection itself. Uh, That comes next week. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Uh, There's there's hardly any details about the crucifixion itself. It's actually just mentioned in one verse. Instead, Luke puts the center of gravity on what Jesus says as he goes to his death. See, um, the, the passage, it breaks down into three parts, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, three groups of uh, three things that Jesus says to three groups of people. And uh, each of those three sayings gives us a bit of the puzzle about what the cross is about. And uh, I want to approach it this evening by looking at these three uh, sayings of Jesus. They're on the handout uh, on, your, uh, on the back of the notice sheet. And uh, I want us to look at each of these sayings and ask, what, what does Jesus say? And secondly, what does he mean by what he says? 
First of all, um, let's look at this first point, the need of the cross. See, the first words of Jesus show us why the cross matters. See, I think many of us in our culture, we hear the idea of Jesus saving us, and we struggle to see why we need saving. But these first words of Jesus show us why. Uh, They come in uh, a response to some women who are following him. See, in a, a Jewish funeral, it would be customary to have professional mourners brought in, and they would follow the coffin and cry and wail in a very dramatic uh, way for the dead. And these mourners have turned up early. They're following Jesus as he walks towards Calvary, weeping and crying out behind him. But interestingly, look at Jesus' response to this in verse 28. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus says, look, you've got it the wrong way round. You shouldn't be weeping for me. You should be weeping for you. Why does he say that? Well, look at verse 29. For the time will come when, your child, when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. Now, I don't know if you notice that, but what Jesus said there is very shocking. See, he's warning of a judgment to come. And it is so serious that to be childless in those days is something to be celebrated. Because you won't have to watch your children suffer. He says it's so terrifying that people would rather have the rocks crush them than go on living. See, Jesus has warned time and time again that rejecting the Son will mean judgment. Just have a look uh, a couple of pages back at uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 41. It's on page 1054. Remember these words from Jesus as he approached, verse 41, verse chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, you, even you, if you had known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, Jesus warns, back over the page to uh, 1061, Jesus warns, that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. See, I wonder sometimes if we can think of the cross as a bit like things got out of control, that God was in control uh, until that was that Jesus is handed over to the Roman authorities. But actually, the account of this cross shows us that God is very much in control and he's planning for judgment to follow. See, if you fast forward to the end, you'll see that there are signs of this. Um, Luke includes in in verse 44 that there's darkness over the whole land. Now, um, you probably know this, but it's not possible that that was a solar eclipse. It lasts three hours, and it's during a full moon. Rather, it's a supernatural darkness over the land. Now, why does Luke tell us that? Well, it's because darkness is your classic sign of judgment. See, God is angry. Secondly, there's a massive tear in the temple curtain in verse 45. Now, um, the temple curtain was a whole hand thick, a hand's breadth thick, 
And it took many priests to lift it, but it's torn miraculously in two. Now, um, many of us read that, and and we think that that's a good thing. Uh, We're accustomed to reading it and thinking, that means that Jesus is breaking down the barrier between us and God. Now, that is true, but I don't think Luke is saying that. That's that's something from Hebrews. See, actually, for Luke, I think this is a preview of what will happen to the temple. See, Luke includes it to say that in a matter of decades, it won't just be the curtain that's torn, it will be the temple itself. See, the big point is that judgment is coming. See, the people thought that they could kill the son, and there wouldn't be any consequences. But just because God doesn't act right there and then doesn't mean he won't act. And the terrifying thing is that this came true just 35 years later. Let me introduce you to this guy, Josephus. Uh, he's, um, he wasn't a Christian. He's a, an ancient historian. Uh, he's uh, Jewish, uh, but he sided with the Romans and uh, wrote down lots of accounts of uh, their uh, wars. And uh, he's written this book called The Jewish War, published by Penguin. Um, he uh, describes uh, what happens in AD 70. He says this, While the sanctuary was burning... Lutin went on, on right and left, and all who were caught were put to the sword. There was no pity for age, no regard for rank, little children and old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was held in the iron embrace of war, whether they defended themselves or cried for mercy. Through the roar of the flames as they swept relentlessly on could be heard the groans of the fallen. Such were the height of the hill and the vastness of the blazing edifice that the entire city seemed to be on fire. Well, as for the noise, nothing could be imagined more shattering or more horrifying. Yet more terrible than the din were the sights that met the eye. The temple hill, enveloped in flames from top to bottom, appeared to be boiling up from its very roots. Yet the sea of flame was nothing to the, compared to the ocean of blood or the companies of killers to the armies that have killed. Nowhere could the ground be seen between the corpses, and the soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. You can see, can't you, why Jesus says, weep for yourselves. See, part of the reason I think our culture thinks the cross is perhaps foolishness or irrelevant is because it doesn't believe in a judgment. See, it doesn't believe that there's consequences for rejecting the Son. And so words like Jesus says here get, kind of get airbrushed out. And we can look at the cross and often think that God is passive. But Jesus shows us that God will call us to account. Now, I know, I know that's difficult to hear. It's difficult for me to read. But we do know instinctively, don't we, that justice in our world is an important thing. See, we cannot stand it, can we, when we see injustice, when people lie and they're not called to account, or we see companies exploiting the vulnerable and they seem to get away with it. We want justice to be done there. So why would we expect God to be any different? This is why we need the cross. Ultimately, judgment will fall. But thankfully, secondly, This is not where Jesus' words finish, because we hear him speak again uh, under our second point, and I've got to say, these are some of the most remarkable words Jesus ever uttered. As the people laid him out on the crossbeam, 
with nails poised above his wrists, and drove them through hammer blow after hammer blow, and hoisted him up so his body slumped down, and it made it almost impossible to fill his lungs with air. Jesus' thoughts were not on his own agony. They were on the welfare of those killing him. Just look at what he says in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There's no word of curse, no promise of revenge. Jesus pleads for his enemies. And they are words that remind us that following Jesus means loving our enemies like he did. But it's actually what Jesus says in the second half of that sentence that is most intriguing. Have a look at it again. It's easy to miss. Verse 34, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, when I looked at that, I started to think, what does Jesus mean? They do not know. I mean, he cannot mean that they do not know he's innocent because we've seen time and time again, Jesus, uh, everyone confesses Jesus' innocence. It cannot mean that they do not know what they're doing by crucifying him that they've kind of made an ignorant mistake because Jesus puts the blame firmly at their door. So what does Jesus mean? They do not know. Well, then I notice what was going on around Jesus' words. And you see in this whole section that people just don't know what the true significance is of what's going on. It's like they haven't seen the bigger picture. Now, to help kind of illustrate this to us, um, I thought I'd show us one of these. Um, you may remember this craze from the 90s. Um, youngsters, you've probably got no clue what this is. Um, anyone know what it is? Magic eye? Yeah, good. Um, yeah, it's a magic eye. So the idea was that um, it's kind of a, a kind of picture that you can't really see. But if you kind of look through the picture, and there are all sorts of theories for how you can do this, you can actually see a 3D picture. So the idea is um, you look through it, and you can see something more clearly. Now, I'm not going to leave it there because you're all looking at it, trying to work it out. <laughs> but you've got to imagine there's a similar dynamic here. See, uh, people, we see people through this section dismiss the cross because they're kind of just seeing the surface. But Luke shows us through the picture what's really going on. Do you get the point? Now, how does he do this? Well, he records for us the events, but he does it in a way that shows us that Jesus is fulfilling a Old Testament type. See, if you're writing notes, here's, um, here's a little table for you. Um, this whole section is littered with Old Testament quotes and allusions. Take, for example, the little detail about the soldiers dividing the garments at the end of verse 34. You think, why is that significant? But then you read that exact verse comes out of Psalm 22. Or the insults in verse 35, where they say, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the God of God, the chosen one. They are words in Psalm 22. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's who Psalm 22 is about. See, um, Psalm 22 is about God's king. But the thing is, he's a king that doesn't look like a king because he suffers. But here's the thing that suffering doesn't last forever. Because God will save him. And not just him, but people with him. Here's Psalm 22, here's what it says. For he has not despised, for this is God, for God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. He suffers much, but God hears him. 
Verse 26, for the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those that seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. There is a king promised who will come and he will look defeated. He will suffer. But that's not the end, for God will uphold him. And this is what the people cannot see. See, they just see the kind of surface level image. They just see a failed king, an object of ridicule. They say, look, if he was the saver of the world, surely he would save himself. Makes sense, doesn't it? But there's a real ironic twist here. Because even their curse words are fulfilling this prophecy. See, every time they curse Jesus, actually they're reinforcing who Jesus is. And their response reminds us that many miss the significance of the cross. It's like the magic eye. We, lots of people I remember in the 90s, they just took a look and thought, that's nonsense. There's nothing there. They only look at the surface. And many people do that with the cross. Because it doesn't kind of fit how we expect God to work. It's too barbaric. It doesn't make sense. But this shows us that that is not how we judge things. See, the people here had Jesus dying in front of them and they couldn't see what was happening. See, if you find the cross difficult to grasp, that is to be expected. If you ever find yourself asking, how can the death of a carpenter 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away get me through death? That is to be expected. Because the cross doesn't work according to our logic. The significance of the cross doesn't rest on what we think is impressive. Rather, it rests on what God has done and what he promised. And Jesus shows us that he's fulfilling that perfectly. There is, though, thirdly, one person who sees differently. See, in the midst of all the shouts, all the insults, there is one voice which goes in the opposite direction. And these final words that Jesus speaks to him shows us the power of the cross. Now, J.C. Roll, the old Victorian preacher, he said about this next section that these, deserve, these words deserve to be written in gold. Now, why is that? Well, look at what happens. Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And the first criminal, in verse 39, joins in with the rest of the crowd with all the insults and all the cursing. But the criminal on the other side sees things differently. He rebukes the criminal. Look at what he says in verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? Now, interestingly there, that word sentence in the original is the word judgment. And so this criminal recognizes what Jesus said was coming, that we're facing judgment. But he doesn't kind of squirm out of his responsibility. Look at what he says in verse 41. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. See, he, he, you notice that. He doesn't point the finger at others. He doesn't blame his sin on society or his upbringing or his parents. He doesn't even point the finger at God and say, actually, it's your fault. Rather, he recognizes there's a judgment and he recognizes he is guilty. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a beautiful detail there. This man uses the name Jesus after everyone else has avoided it. And he asked Jesus to remember him. 
he can see differently. He can see the 3D image. He can see that Jesus is a king, that he will have a kingdom, and that he wants to be part of it. And Jesus replies with his golden words in verse 43, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I was thinking as I was studying this, what it must have been like for this criminal as he began that day. He, I presume, was in a prison cell. He was brought out and loaded on with a crossbeam, ready for the cross. And like Jesus, he walked to Calvary knowing that every step was a step closer to an agonizing death. And after that, he faced the judgment seat of God. But his day changed. Because this criminal found himself crucified next to God the Son. And because God the Son had intervened and done this work on the cross, he now finishes that day in paradise with him. See, this criminal's response shows us the power of the cross. It's hard, isn't it, to to know what the criminal knew? Did he fully understand Jesus? Could he recite the creed? Probably not. Did he know what this kingdom was? It's hard to tell. And he couldn't do any good deeds. Uh, He couldn't put right his wrongdoing. His hands were literally tied. But this condemned criminal was the very first disciple to be promised life and to receive it. It's worth mentioning in passing here that Jesus' words mean there's no purgatory, there's no kind of limbo where we pay for sins because he says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's worth also seeing that salvation doesn't come from being baptized or receiving Holy Communion or doing penance. There's no chance for those things. Rather, salvation comes through Jesus' death. It's the cross that saves See, many in our world just see the cross on the surface. They see a crucified carpenter and a foolish idea. But this man sees through the image. He sees what's really going on. He sees God's king, victorious, entering into his kingdom. Now, this boy here is um, probably the most significant, one of the most significant figures in the whole of history. And I guess almost no one knows who he is. I was going to ask you if anyone knows his name, but it would really spoil my illustration if someone does. He's a boy called James Pips, and uh, he was completely poor. He was a son of a gardener, and there is absolutely nothing remarkable about him. Yet he is the first to benefit from something that every single one of us in our room, this room, has benefited from, because he was the first person to receive a vaccine See, at the time um, of James Pips, he was, um, there was smallpox killed um, 20% of people. So imagine a fifth of our congregation just being wiped out over their lives. But Edward Jenner developed a vaccine, and he gave it to this eight-year-old boy. And because of that work, because of that vaccine, smallpox could no longer touch him. And the experience of that one boy led to many vaccines being developed. Uh, That boy was literally the start of millions of lives being saved. See, in a way, every time we go into the doctors and we have that vaccine, we step through his steps. We receive the life that he first did. He is the first in a long line of millions who live like him. So it is with the criminal on this cross. He's unremarkable in himself, 
condemned, hopeless, weak, a sinner. But he is the first in a new humanity who receives life. The benefit he received is something millions share as we speak the same prayer he does. See, the words, the golden words Jesus speaks to him are the same words that he speaks to all of us who share in his prayer. See, judgment will come. Jesus reminds us. And many don't see the significance of the cross, but this reminds us that whilst many don't, some do. Some say this prayer. Some ask for Jesus for help. And those who do are promised paradise. Perhaps some of us here this evening need to hear those words again. Perhaps um, we're, how shall I put it, in the final scenes of our life. And that question will hit us. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough to get me through death? Is he enough to get me forgiven? Jesus says to you, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Or perhaps there are others of us who get kind of wrapped up in our failures and we struggle from temptation to temptation and we look back on our record and we just feel burdened by the load of our sin. But remember, Jesus says to a condemned criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Perhaps even there are some of us here this evening who would love to hear those words said of us. Well, this criminal shows us how. He does two things. First of all, he recognizes his guilt. And then secondly, he asks Jesus for help. And the moment you do that, even this evening, you too can hear those words, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Gracious Father, we thank you for this astonishing picture of Jesus suffering victoriously, fulfilling the promises and even saving this criminal on the cross. Father, we pray that you would increase our view of his work And for those, Father, who want to trust it but struggle, please help us, Father, to take confidence from these words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In Jesus' name, amen.